Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Angel. And I'm your co-host, Ruby, and this is our 59th episode. For it today, truly was an honor we are presenting to get to an interview Matthew, that Angel did an with Matthew Remsky, co-host and of have the been Spirituality fascinated to witness them document in just about real time the Yoga to QAnon pipeline. Our Patreon subscribers are getting access to videos that I'm making from my new yoga teaching gig. I started a yoga teaching business called Mushroom Moon Yoga, where I am teaching at local witchy shop and. I have been recording my classes, so they're being shared on Patreon. And I have been thinking a lot about yoga as I have been developing as a yoga teacher. And so as I'm becoming a yoga teacher and helping lead people in yoga classes, I've also been really just having to reconcile with some of the dark history of yoga that has been a this podcast has been a great resource for learning about. I have made it an intention to work to honor the traditional roots of yoga, but still be mindful of some of the tainted legacy, especially of the gurus that came over specifically during the 20th century, such as Yogi Bhajan and Swami Satchitananda, who, while they were very instrumental in helping bring yoga to the West, they were extremely problematic and abusive to many of their followers. And I, at one point, as I talk about in this episode, I was a very devout follower of Kundalini Yoga. Mm. Yeah, and while listening through and editing this episode, I particularly enjoyed how you two talked about and how that type of mindset and environment can be basically a breeding ground for cults. And that caused me to start reflecting about things that have been going on in my own life. And I just kind of thought, you know, what were my actual experiences in yoga? And what I could kind of come up with was there was like a couple classes at the YMCA I went to with my mom back in the day. But most of it was really in high school. My theater teacher also taught, she taught Ula, but my senior year English teacher, she taught yoga. And every once in a while, we would all do yoga in class. And I took a couple years of Mandarin Chinese back in the day, and we did learn some Tai Chi. And that was so relaxing. And mm. I just kept seeing how much of an overlap with yoga there was while listening to this episode in particular <laughs> you know i uh, i love those old teachers that i had we really don't pay them enough like why did they have to teach yoga on the side like good yeah. god and they had one job being an unloco parentis figure and that wasn't enough to put food on the plate they still had to get another fucking job <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just means legally to be in place of the parent mm. until your child is like walks in the door from school. The school is responsible for your well-being. 
that's something I couldn't really hack at the time. I'd like to try to mm. come back into it at some point, but seriously to the teachers that are still doing the job, that are still doing the work, hats off to you. You deserve so much more pay. Preach. You deserve to be paid yeah, more than the corporations as a daughter who of sell a the retired textbooks that you're required by teacher, law to teach. Shout out to my mom. <laughs> I know firsthand how hard it can be to be a teacher who cares. And at this point, I, I also wanted to say this makes me think, of course, of Inku, our fellow and beloved co-host, who will be back next month from his sabbatical. And I'm really excited for him to come on and talk about some really awesome topics that he's been delving into in the education arena. But as we both know, teachers definitely do not get the amount of credit and resources they deserve, which is something I fully acknowledge about the job of being a teacher. I love teaching and I love to share knowledge, but I have been a teacher in the public education system, and I acknowledge that it requires a level of personal sacrifice that I'm honestly not willing to make. But yet, I still love teaching, which is why now with my yoga business, I can teach something that I feel is really important, that getting to share this ancient movement practice with people and give them the tools to really transform their lives, because that's one of the gifts that yoga has given to me, is it is a technology that is gifted to us from this ancient wisdom practice that I feel helps us human better. But there's always layers to a practice that has these ancient roots, and it's important as which is in modernity that we recognize the truth of where some of these movement practices came to our particular cultural context, but still being sensitive to everyone's own unique experience when they come to the practice of yoga. So while I did spend a lot of this interview disclosing and in some ways even processing with Matthew, my mixed feelings about my experiences with kundalini yoga through the pandemic, I also feel that this is one of the things I'm here for as part of my great work is to find this lotus amongst the mud and share it with my yoga practice and our Patreon supporters. Hmm. Hmm. I am that care to attention is just it's a big part of why I joined the podcast in the first place. And I heard that throughout listening the episode. Mm. So hearing y'all talk about how common cults can emerge from seemingly everywhere just reminds me a lot of my childhood ch church hopping days. Mm. And frankly, this interview you, was refreshing. The creative to hear in me, come from season honors. And the I'm really glad I basically got to be the first audience and member for this. With that, let's roll this interview with Michael Rimsky from the Conspirituality Podcast. Well, for this interview, I have an extremely special guest, and I'm so excited. I have Matthew Remsky from the Conspirituality Podcast, which has been 
one of the most informative and just podcast goals, absolutely podcast goals for the Science Witch podcast. So thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on to our show. I am such a huge fan of both your podcast and now your book. And before we jump into our conversation, I wanted to or ask you if any of our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your podcast, can you start out by introducing yourself and how you came to be one of the co-hosts of the Conspirituality Podcast? Sure. Well, thank you for the invitation and for the kind welcome, Angel. You know, I have known my co-hosts and colleagues, uh, Derek Barris and Julian Walker, for about 10 years. And the three of us have eked out this strange cultural commentary space in uh, primarily in the yoga world. Mm -hmm. um, we have all been yoga instructors. I think Julian might still do a little bit of that, but he also does kind of trance dance DJ stuff now. And what we have always written about together, um, sometimes in collaboration and sometimes in dialogue, have been the, you know, the, the space between the promises of yoga and wellness language and what it actually offers. Mm -hmm. We have written about um, cultic dynamics. Julian and I both have experience in that. We have written about the strange politics that can confound the promises of yoga and wellness culture, or at least confound the expectations that some people might have that there's something inherently liberal or progressive about, <laughs> about wanting to become more self-aware. That's, that's not generally or even necessarily the case. So we've we've shared that for a long time and i think that by the time the spring of 2020 hit we realized that something very substantial uh and critical was happening in this demographic that we had been a part of and had followed for so long and i think we did our first episode in may and it was shortly after the release of Pandemic by, mm, Mickey, mm -hmm. by, Mickey, by Mickey Willis. Yeah. And he provided a kind of synthesis of, you know, not only the themes that we had been familiar with, but also manner of presentation and demographic intersections. You know, he was a new age film producer prior to embarking upon his COVID contrarian propaganda. Yeah. And so I also, I think, I realized that a person named Kelly Brogan was extremely interesting. She was a kind of self-identified holistic psychiatrist. She she was a, a licensed psychologist, a psychiatrist mm -hmm. in the state of New York. But she came out with some very strange statements right at the beginning of the pandemic that were impossible for me to ignore. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were couched within her kind of understanding of kundalini yoga as well, which I think we might talk a little bit more about. Oh, yeah. So the it, I really can't, it's hard to explain how it came together. There was a lot of chance involved for sure. Uh, and then there was this prior sort of working relationship and, and sympathy that the three of us had. My particular 
pathway into the subject immediately prior had been through about four years of doing uh, investigative journalism on abuse in yoga schools. And mm -hmm. then there was one other larger article or, or big investigative piece that I did about Shambhala Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so my tracking of toxic social dynamics in religious and especially new religious groups, that was the sort of toolbox that I brought to this. In the book and in your podcast, you talk really candidly about your experience of being a cult survivor and how this has informed your approach to studying the phenomenon of conspirituality. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's really important to have that perspective when you're approaching this topic. Yeah, I think it's useful because the basic structure of any high demand group is it presents members with this paradox of paranoia and aspiration. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, the group will always be describing the outside world in paranoiac terms. Uh, it will always be predicting some kind of disaster, or it will be looking for disasters to make into sort of significant pieces of, of you know, their narrative of resistance or something like that. And then that has to be counterposed against the promise of the leader or the promise of the content. And so that template, that sort of basic structure of we're going to invoke a kind of paranoid response and we're also going to promise to solve it, that is at the root of the architecture of conspirituality, which, you know, as we define it, is this combination, this alchemy of very cynical, negative, conspiratorial views about the world and the new age or yogic promise that because you have realized how desperate things are, you now have the opportunity and the responsibility to transform, have epiphanies, wake up, do more practices. So, so that, you know, both high demand groups that I was in had that feeling of urgency. The world is collapsing and mm. you better, you really have to practice hard in order to seize the opportunity of this kind of spectacle, this deranged spectacle that you live in. And also there's not a lot of time left, you know, mm. in, in the first group that I was in, which was Buddhist, the fact that there's not a, not a lot of time left was kind of baked into the ancient philosophy. It's like, you know, life is impermanent, right. but the leader actually also gave us this sense that the world can be saved through your spiritual practice and the worse things get the harder you should commit yourself to your meditations and your visualizations and and all of this stuff and so that's really there's a small small jump between the way in which high demand groups structure themselves and the basic value proposition of conspirituality which is the pandemic Mm -hmm. is actually an opportunity for you to realize the 
depredations of the medical system and how unfair insurance is and how corrupt big pharmaceutical companies are. And if you seize that opportunity, then you will have, you know, not only in a, a political awakening, but a spiritual awakening. And so those things are 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 very close. I th I'd say there's a bunch of other sort of intersections as well. And one is that it was clear to me when I saw Kelly Brogan doing her selfie sermons and mm -hmm. Mickey Willis going on Facebook Live and Zach Bush giving his orations about the divine nature of death and so on, that the influencers in the conspirituality sphere rely on charisma. Yeah. They have to because they generally don't have evidence, right? It's like yeah. something has to fill the gap. They have to sell their presence to their followers mm -hmm. with something. And that something is very mysterious. It's 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 magnetism, it's extroversion, it's the willingness to pontificate, to hold court, to pretend that you're certain about everything. All of these charismatic values are very familiar to people who have either been in cults or who have studied cult leaders. Another overlap would be that, and this is in relation to the paradox of, of paranoia and promise, is that both a high demand group in particular, in a very sort of claustrophobic, enclosed fashion, but then a conspirituality movement in a much more open and online and come and go as you please fashion, both of these structures induce what I would call disorganized attachment. It's right. not, I would I wouldn't call it that. It's a, it's a term from from the attachment literature that mm -hmm. Alexandra Stein has sort of innovated to apply to cults and and what she basically is suggesting is that when you put people into a constant state of conflict between paranoia and promise between terror and love you really scramble their capacity to understand who you are as an authority figure to them um, you become the parent who is both an alcoholic but a caregiver you become the parent who might be violent but might be also tender with you and mm -hmm. and and you know just as the child will draw will be drawn to until they you know have the gumption to leave they will be drawn to that conflicted caregiver so too is a high demand group member drawn to a leader a charismatic leader who has the same qualities because on one hand, they're going to terrify you. And on the other hand, they're going to give you uh, the solution. I would actually say for the Americans who are following this, this episode, if you think about Robert F. Kennedy in this framework, yeah. uh, his, his actual impact upon his followers is quite similar mm -hmm. because he is masterful at two different registers of communication. Yeah. Telling telling you just how debauched and horrible every institution is, and then invoking usually a spiritually tinged or nuanced promise uh, about how we can all be one, we can transcend separation and duality and so on. And and I think that 
the last thing that I'll say about the usefulness of the cult studies framework is that all high demand groups offer a kind of scam, which is the pretense of political efficacy. So if you feel in your life that you have no control, that you you can't affect change, that you are voting in in a in a kind of desperate um, I don't know meaningless way for the lesser of two evils, and you're sick of it, and nothing ever changes. A high demand group can slide into your life mm. and, and give you give you the idea that your social participation within it will actually effectively change the world. And the problem is, is that it, it, it's really only a self-contained claim. People join high demand groups and they invest themselves in this deceptive picture of being extroverted and impacting the world. But really what's happening is that all of the attention, all of the money, all of the emotional labor, all of the sexual labor, all of that is being turned inwards towards the center. Right. High demand groups are terrible at strategizing. They're terrible at organizing. The Moonies might be an exception. The Unification Church uh, mm -hmm. is is very good at proselytization, and they've made you know strong political inroads. You know, but if you take a group like Keith Raniere's Nexium, mm. here's so here's somebody who actually sold his program as being politically effective, and he suggested to the women in DOS that they were going to become somehow, you know, the titans of of politics and diplomacy, and that he'd have DOS members in all of the meetings at Davos and whatever. None of that come to, came to pass, and I don't right. think it ever would have, because the actual goal of the cult is its own social reproduction. It, it really does not want to change the world. And in fact, if it tried to, it would lose relevance as a group, because you know, as soon as the outside world begins to match the perspective that the that the that the group leader has, what exactly is he fighting for? Yeah. So, so those are those are just some of the the overlaps. And then, oh, one last thing: there's some direct cult and conspirituality pipeline examples, mm. like the fact that the first one of the first new age and new spirituality vectors for QAnon was Jay-Z Knight or mm -hmm. the founder of of the Ramtha School of Enlightenment back yeah. in 2019 so before the pandemic and then of course we have Katie Griggs and and um as you know also known as Guru Jaga which is yeah that's such a tragic story um, and that kind of circles me back to one of the other things that really struck me about your book was that chapter about Katie Griggs uh Guru Jagat who and the Kundalini Yoga movement and as I mentioned on the podcast before I was an avowed practitioner of Kundalini and is insofar as like I started practicing in 2015 I was living in Phoenix Arizona which is one of where the I think school is and I started learning from a teacher who I guess she was in their addiction program or um, addiction recovery program and so she was teaching free kundalini yoga classes and she was pretty scattered and, and flaky and so she didn't you know really come around as much as I wanted to but then that was like my entryway into kundalini yoga and then I started 
taking classes and I started going online and finding kundalini uh, kriyas to do and I I got really into it. I got myself a, a spiritual name from 3HO and I was wearing a turban and all white and my kundalini yoga teacher had asked me if I wanted to start kundalini teacher training and I was really geared towards that. But at the time, I was like, was oh, this is my community. It was, oh, yeah, of course she was. I I mean, I love my teacher. I still do. She's still a, a close personal friend. And I found Kundalini was transformative. I had, I was going through a really difficult time in my life. I just moved from Arizona to Oregon. And I had found this Kriya. And I, I was really broke, so I had no money. So I just did this Kriya for 30 days in a row at my apartment. And on the 30th day, I had what is the closest thing I had to samadhi. I just had this like almost like ego shattering experience, almost like I was on some kind of psychedelic. And that was a profound experience for me. And it really just helped me pull through this really difficult time in my life. And yeah, I I would have fallen into that had it not been for... This other yoga group that I ended up becoming more involved with, which shout out to yoga and beer. I know it's it's a lot more westernized, but it's very accessible. It's donation based. We do yoga at all these different locations, including breweries and wineries all over the Willamette Valley. And it was just at the time a little more casual. And Kundalini's hard. It's a hard yoga. Like when the the ego buster where you're like you have your hands up and you're supposed to like chant and i always had trouble doing that but i was believing that this was all like some ancient practice that we were lucky enough to be able to practice as westerners it was all a lie it was all completely <laughs> a lie and that you know, when I read your book, and I had started getting inklings, you know, with Pamela Dyson's memoir that came out about how she was, you know, sexually and emotionally abused by Yogi Bhajan. And then, you know, when I was telling people I was really getting into Kundalini Yoga, they were like, well, have you heard about some of the things Yogi Bhajan has said? And to say, I was still kind of a little bit in that culty mindset where I was like, oh, well, I don't know, maybe the context of that. But now, you know, since reading your book and coming to your work, it's like, oh, wow, this was all just a sham. And this man was a horrible racist and a rapist and a misogynist. And I'm just sort of left with this this conflict and this confusion of why did I have this transformative experience from something that was a complete lie? And so, yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that since you are a scholar of yoga and you are you have practiced it for a long time and researched it. How do you find the lotus through all this mud? Because there's just so much mud now that I've become much more informed about the history of yoga, even so far as how it's connected to body fascism. And just about every yoga school has some sort of insidious, abusive dynamics. So yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Well, my first thought is I really empathize with this very, very common and old story, I think. It, a lot of people have found themselves in the position that you're describing. Off the top, I would suggest that the positive experiences that you had 
through those practices, they are yours Mm -hmm. and that you did make them happen and that it's quite possible that you could have made them happen with just about anything, you know? Mm. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And maybe that gives a little bit of relief. I think the question about what's the essence of yoga, I don't think I can really answer except to say whatever it is, it's socially mediated. Yeah. So looking at the community that that produces it and reproduces it is really key. And and I'm particularly postmodern that way. There's a lot of people who will bristle at me even suggesting that it's impossible to describe or, or get to the essence of yoga, but there's just too many versions of it all to get to any sort of core. And I think the example of how the classical yoga sutras of Patanjali made their way into the yoga teacher training syllabus as kind of a root text is a great study for that, right? Yeah. What we tend to do with, and this is part of the legacy of colonialism, what we tend to do with Indian wisdom traditions is we tend to fetishize so that we can possess and that generally involves a process of simplifying and reducing something down to, oh, well, this is what it says, instead of realizing that, oh, we're actually engaging with thousands of years of literature, hugely diverse groups of practitioners who were all arguing with each other mm. in institutionally and outside institutions about what the hell this thing was. And and for us to, I think, so I think that the quest for essence in yoga says a lot more about the person looking for it and what they're missing or what they, what they desire than it does about what might be actually available in a given religious tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a lot of non-Hindu, non-Sanskrit speaking people who don't have sort of familial background in yoga culture, there's a drive towards seeking out the essence of something that has a lot to do with, well, I just want to know that something is real, right? I really just want to find something that's authentic, right? Because that's part of the investment in a pre-modern tradition. It's like, I feel I'm white. I might feel rootless. I might feel like I'm deracinated from my culture. I don't really know how the economy works. All those things are true. (laughs) I might live far away from my family. It's it's not your grandmother's 19th century anymore. And I want something that is real. And I think those two questions go together. It's like, what's the essence of yoga? And how can I feel like I'm doing something real? Mm. And and I don't I think they're misplaced questions. Mm. Because when it comes down to it, you are always just going to be engaging with a literature along with fellow travelers. That's mm. it. Like that's you're you're gonna you're gonna find what's useful, as opposed to what is true or eternal. I think, and and I think that's a that's a good enough goal. So, that's what I'd have to say about essence. But with regard to oh, shit, I was practicing kundalini yoga and now I found find out that the founder was a real shit. You know, I, I think my feeling about this now is that we all get sucked into systems without our consent. And so I would put that experience in that larger context, except that there's something very intimate about 
yoga instruction and contemplation that makes it feel extra gross when this stuff happens. Mm -hmm. One of the stories that I worked on years ago was about how the Satyananda Yoga Organization, which was very, very influential in the sort of first stage of globalization in the 70s and 80s, was run by basically a criminal cartel that, you know, where the where many of the leaders were accused of child sexual abuse and mm. other and other crimes. And the sort of lasting influence of Satyananda Yoga on the global scene was through the library of books that they published under the title or under the I guess the imprimatur of the Bihar Yoga School mm -hmm. and these are like quite famous books a lot of them are attributed to 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 um, Satyananda himself but he couldn't possibly have written you know two books so there a lot of them are ghost written but they were generally thought to be authentic presentations of medieval yoga techniques you know the best that could be available in the English translation one of those techniques was called yoga nidra and it became the focal point of get this uh, about 10 years ago the restorative yoga movement mm -hmm. okay so so yoga nidra is kind of a, a meditative sleeping conscious sleeping lucid dreaming practice where the instructor is going to guide people through a meditative environment and discover things and let things happen. It's quite beautiful. And because it got picked up by yoga practitioners, the vast majority of whom were women and who were looking for non-patriarchal, non-coercive, restorative self-care practices as they became more and more aware of the abusiveness of the yoga world, it became a sort of a centerpiece of that. And then this story breaks where the guy who is responsible for popularizing this practice is shown to be as toxic a criminal as Yogi Bhajan is. Mm. And and the feeling amongst the practitioners who had sort of learned this and, and made it a part of their daily lives was the same kind of feeling of of being violated that you're describing, which is, how did this guy get into my head? How did he get into my tissues like this? Like, yeah, you know, if if I'm going to surrender myself to a meditation, the script better not have been written by a rapist, right? Yeah. And so that really, I think, forced people to say, okay, well, it's not a mistake that we felt good doing this thing. What What is it about it? Um, what is essential about it? And yeah. that prompted all kinds of people to sort of break it down and get rid of the old scripts and sort of identify the architecture of what it was about to reclaim it. And I think that's a very positive thing to do because otherwise you end up rejecting this part of yourself that... Mm -hmm. that you know, where you experience something developmentally important. Right. So I, I guess the other thought that I have about it is that we encounter these practices and groups um, often so innocently, you know, 
I, I, I'm thinking, this might sound strange, but I'm thinking of like the boys and girls who found themselves really enjoying calisthenics mm-hmm. while they were, and then somebody handed them a, a Nazi youth uniform of shorts and a little, you know, brown shirt. Mm-hmm. And then they kept doing the calisthenics. And did it feel good? Like, did they feel strong? And were they proud to stand up straight? Well, yes. Were they aware of this ideology of of somatic fascism creeping in? Probably not. Were they mm-hmm. also were they also being educated into that ideology? Yes. Was the exercise being used to sort of validate and foreground the the ideology yes did they realize that maybe <laughs> i mean like uh, it, the same thing happened to the students of tirumalai krishnamacharya in mysore who went on to sort of proselytize to the entire world because modern postural yoga was a hindu nationalist project yeah and but but what does that mean for the person who doesn't know that and right. and who feels like exhilarated because Mr. Iyengar told them to stand up straight and and he took it seriously. And yeah. he asked and he asked you to like feel your toes against the mat and and do all of this stuff that just made you feel tingly all over. I just don't see any reason for being ashamed at being drawn in if it worked. The real shame, I think, should be reserved for those who realize what's going on, realize that it's not working because of what's underneath it, and they stay anyway, right, without changing it. You know, I, I, I think about, like with Kundalini Yoga, we could go right back to the beginning, Angel, because... Here in Toronto is where Yogi Bhajan got his international start. Mm-hmm. So 1968, you know, rents out a big mansion on this beautiful street called Palmerston Boulevard and put out flyers for morning classes and they put them into the into the health food stores and whatever. You know, people, hippies, dropouts, acid heads, they would they would go from chanting on Yorkville to the, you know, through the night, and then they'd show up at Kriya's in the morning. And it felt amazing. Yeah. And and for so many of those people, they didn't know why he left Toronto under a cloud. Mm. Um, they didn't know what he went on to do. They didn't know that when he got to Los Angeles, he really sort of doubled down on figuring out how to form a, a self-sealed group around himself. They had a very brief experience of if if the breathing exercises probably had a lot to do with that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they probably, as I said at the at the start of this, like they probably could have generated those sensations in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, but there's this threshold where people become devotees, and then they attribute all of the magic to the leader, or they don't cross that threshold and they say, yeah, that was really cool. And I'm going to remember that for times of need. Yeah. And yeah. And I think really it's a small group of people who deserve to be ashamed actually, because it's only really a small group of people who wind up acting as active recruiters and apologists. I think Bikram is a really good case study in it's the various types of magnetism. Right. One one of the most interesting things I heard somebody say about Bikram was that he was really successful in Hollywood with celebrity clients because yeah. nobody else in their lives was 
cursing at them or insulting them or telling them that they were full of shit. And that was actually really powerful. Like for them, it was this notion, this, this feeling that, oh, this guy is actually seeing through me. I already feel as a Hollywood starlet or whatever, like I'm a fraud. This guy sees through me. He's not going to fawn over me. And that means that he must be real. He must have something. He must have the goods. And so I think that was a huge part of his initial success. And then beyond that, he just created a charismatic machine based on incredible claims of the healing properties of his, of his dumb series. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, and it merged with a a kind of 1980s and 90s uh, fascination with the pain of just doing it. Yeah. And yeah, there we go. It's off to the races. Seems to be seems to be fading in popularity now, I have to say. There is so much critical discourse around the sort of authoritarian or, or coercive forms of yoga instruction that I can't see it lasting in any, in any substantial form for very much longer. You know, except maybe in places like um, Russia where it would continue to provide some kind of like yeah, sublimation yeah. for for the political I, horrors going on I'm, there. I'm seeing that there there seems to be a pattern that when there's this charismatic leader, and they're the ones that are sort of the center of these yoga cults, there always inevitably ends up becoming some sort of you know, problematic thing about them. And I think, again, you know, where you you talk about in your book, this alchemy of uh, charisma and how in a lot of ways, it's an attempt to make that central figure more human than human, right? And so that you don't see all of the, the moral failings or in a lot of ways, just human side of it. And that, you know, the approach to yoga that I am developing and thinking about is like, I, you know, I do have charisma. I I know that I'm, I kind of have fallen into the role of being a community leader, but I'm very big on like, okay, no, we're not hierarchical. I'm not here to be your guru. I'm just here on this journey with you. And I happen to want and like teaching. So but, you know, I'm not looking to be anybody's like guru or, you know, spiritual leader. I'm just here to offer this as part of my practice. And yeah, I think that's part of where the the positive aspects of yoga can come from when, because I, you know, I, being a community leader, I have had people to try to put me up on a pedestal and, and make me into something that I'm not. And so I'm, I'm very much like in a lot of part because of your work, because I'm like, I don't want to end up in that position. I don't want to end up in, in having this situation where people are trying to ascribe to me a level of um, admiration that I will fall from, you know? Well, you know, I I appreciate what you're saying, and and if it's been helpful, that's great. But in my experience, um, you know, folks who are worried about that happening just don't have the temperament to yeah. flip the switch from I'm a community organizer. I'm somewhat extroverted. I like being around people, and I and I'm and I and I'm good with 
you know, getting things to happen on time and making sure the space is well organized and making sure my, you know, the ritual is going to come off in a certain way. And I'm good at that. Um, There's a lot of people who don't have the temperament to cross over the line into those skills mean that I'm a better person than other people. And, and that takes a very particular psychology. Um, And I, I, in my experience, the people who worry about flipping over that switch, just, they don't have that, they don't have that psychological sort of thing going on where, where they become grandiose, you know, Mm -hmm. um, where they lose their where they lose their humility or or they they bu- start buying their own bullshit or they yeah. enjoy the feeling of being you know certain or or what have you um i mean my hope is that is that that those qualities in people will become more e- more and more easy to identify and recognize although you know then when i tour through tiktok i'm not so sure because <laughs> it seems to be a sort of clearing house for concentrating those things, right? Like, yeah. because the, the, the format really sort of encourages spiritual teachers to take those, um, you know, or, or organizers to take those elements of certainty and grandiosity and just turn them up to 10 all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause so that gets at the engagement. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It catches, it catches eyes to be authoritarian and directive for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you say in your book that it doesn't seem like Zoomers um, or Generation Z is as at risk for some of this. But then, you know, TikTok is this whole new beast that I I still kind of scratch my head at because I'm, you know, I'm a millennial. So I'm um, a little like I'm, I'm the beginning of the internet generation. I, you know, si- I was 16 in 2000. So I definitely, it was like right coming of age, right at the internet. And yeah, one of the other things about your book, I thought well, was, can I, can I just say one thing? Yeah, totally. like, what, what I don't know, what, what remains to be seen about, I feel like I should talk to, to like a PhD student about this, who's probably doing something <laughs> on it is that what's not clear to me about Zoomers and TikTok is, the extent to which um, that media will have in real life organizing potential. I don't, I don't know. I I'm not sure that it does. I haven't seen any evidence that it does because the major shift that's happened um, between, you know, the, the pre and post social media eras um, is that the capacity for cultic dynamics has increased but it's also dispersed in terms of intensity like mm-hmm. there's there's very little reason anymore for somebody to go out and build a brick and mortar ashram yes. and put all of the legwork into into the you know renovations and the resources and the permitting and the taxes and all of this shit that they that that you know all of all of all the whole sort of generation of yogi bhajans they had to do yeah um you can do all of that online now, but the relationships are less stable. They're more consumer based. Yes. And so I would be, I would just be surprised if, if we saw a TikTok figure emerge that had a kind of global impact like Chogyam Trungpa or uh, Yogi Bhajan. It seems to be a little bit 
too ethereal and fragmentary for that, but but who knows? It certainly will dispense bad advice, oh, yeah. you know, and, and people will be, you know, drinking bleach or taking hydro, you know, hydroxychloroquine at home for for COVID, or they'll take ivermectin until they, you know, they shit themselves. But like, I, I don't know about mass movements, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen TikTok is is. The, um useful for like when um the the republican national convention or one of the trump rallies they had all all the tiktok kids get on and um get fake tickets so other people couldn't get tickets i mean that kind of movement and activism i feel is like definitely a valuable way of using tiktok but yeah it's i'm i'm not really on it i have to say it's just like those 15 second like it, it just kind of makes my mind even if i am adhd like whoa that's just it's it's so sporadic and quick and um my other co-host she's um uh i think 26 now so she's more on the cusp um and right. yeah she's on tiktok a lot and she'll send me tiktok stuff and so i i stay like connected to it but also i'm just i'm a little like so yeah. this is cat this is cat oh no um my uh my co-host is ruby uh, oh okay All yeah right. yeah uh, my other co-host inku um who's my age are uh actually a year older than me he is uh currently on sabbatical and right. he's going to be coming back in um uh in february so for the listeners yeah. who were wondering what happened to inku he'll be back so um yeah uh inku's actually a sociologist and so i maybe if if you do happen to want to come back uh i'd love to hear the two of you have a conversation because he's um he studies um labor movements and some of oh, the things great. that you talk about in your book Perfect. yeah in yeah. class class dynamics so yeah um well yeah like uh, we we got a like just a little time left so um I can go to... over too if you want. I, okay. I can I can go for a little bit longer if you like. Yeah. I, I went on some tangents there. Yeah, you did. Uh, but I just, I mean, <laughs> I really have kind of like fallen in love with your voice because I just, it's such a great like. <laughs> plus, I've listened to a lot of the book, and then you 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 read the audio book. So, yeah, listeners, like definitely check it out. And yeah, your podcast is just it's it's one of these touchstones for me like I know we both started our podcast around the same time I think our first episode was also in May in 2020 right. and in, in large part like podcasting helped me cope with the pandemic because I just yeah. I was seeing so many people in my community you know the witchcraft and pagan community just like fall down this like you know anxiety spiral and one of the things that um, having a platform for me was really important to is like the synergy between science and spirituality, that it can exist. Um, witches get vaccinated. We don't have to reject, you know, and, and a lot of, and as you talk about in your book, the reason why can spirituality, especially to certain demographics, like, you know, um, white women in uh, the Western world who have been in a lot of ways um, abandoned or abused by the medical system. And right. that this sort of um, crunchy, you know, yoga, like natural foods, um, 
consumerism is a lot more um, uh, appealing because it's, you know, uh, all about being like healthy and rejecting the pharmaceutical companies, but it also has in a lot of ways that insidious um, way of basically damaging, further damaging that trust and also bringing people into some really dangerous ideas. I mean, I was kind of like shook by the amount of um, women in the witchcraft community that were anti-vax. Right. And I'm like, do you have polio? Do your kids have polio? I mean, like <laughs> you can thank a vac- you know, thank vaccines for that. And yeah, it 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 became a really just painful situation where I had to step back and like, okay, I, I can't be angry at these people. As you know, like a lot of them are my friends and people I, I love dearly, like my adopted sister who refused to get vaccinated and she's black. And when she was, um, she's been horribly abused by the uh, medical system in ways that, you know, I'm not gonna disclose in the podcast, but just horribly traumatic ways. And in a lot of ways, I understand why she wouldn't wanna get vaccinated because in large part, you know, like Robert F. Kennedy using, um, you know, um, the, mistrust and uh, abuse that the medical industry has on the black community has done towards the black community for his own political agenda and it it's one of those things where as a podcaster i i'm always like searching for a way to connect with folks in a way that will just help them understand that you know it's so important for us all right now to to come together and get vaccinated, but also just like, yeah, I mean, that's all valid criticism about what the medical industry has done in, in horrible things and, and the racism and everything. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're bringing up why did we have to do this? Yeah. Also, what did we learn as we did track these things uh, as they crash through our communities. And, you know, listening to you, I'm realizing that probably similarly to the yoga and wellness world, the witchcraft and neo-pagan world probably suffered from a an abundance of kind of horizontal um, identification, like we're interested in this thing together, yeah. but not a lot of, and this is nobody's fault, but not a lot of class consciousness or analysis of power. Yeah, And so it, it's like, there's this wonderful new book called uh, If We Burn by Vincent Bevins, which tries to track why is it that through the 2010s, we had more on the street global protests at a larger scale than at any other time in human history? And the result has been increasingly reactionary governments elected into power in all of those places. Like, mm-hmm. what is going on there? And and basically what he argues is that... Um, you know, uh, p- people in Black Lives Matter or, uh, you know, in Brazil or in the Maidan or in any of these places, even even Tahrir Square, 
they had this sense that spontaneously resisting power without a kind of, you know, set goal or analysis of what they wanted to come uh, out of it, it it really fell short of being able to do anything but create a kind of spirit of contrarianism. And, and, and when you have that, when you have the generation of a spirit of contrarianism, it can go in any direction. It can become diagonalist, it can become fascist, it can become uh, reactionary. It's not really, you know, and the thing that sort of always irked me about being in the yoga world uh, was that I felt like I could count on one hand the number of people who I believed actually had some kind of political education mm. and actually knew what class consciousness was, who mm -hmm. actually who actually knew what capitalism is mm -hmm. uh, and and understood that they were actually in a system that they could understand, but then also they could organize against and resist. And and so, yeah, I, I feel like we probably had this parallel discovery of, oh, here are my friends who have gotten waylaid by these weird political, um, you know, incursions, and they were completely defenseless against yeah. them because 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 they their, their enthusiasm for whatever it was, you know herbalism or bodily purification or magical ritual or you know detoxing of the body or whatever that that enthusiasm could be applied to anything it could just be sort of swung around and pointed in the in the rightward direction and so i think that when we started uh, looking at how that was happening it was like oh yeah this is what's going on this has been going on for years and years it was there's this thrill of confirmation mm -hmm. because we knew that this demographic was depoliticized that mm -hmm. it was vulnerable that it was vulnerable that it was consumerist at heart through organization that people talked about community but what they were really talking about was how you know deeply enmeshed they were in their pyramid schemes you know yeah. and and now we had proof oh yeah all of this is happening and and then there's the second stage where you know you realize maybe through your 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 adoptive sister and her story that you know the kind of that kind of thrill of confirmation or the schadenfreude is a little bit sour it's empty yeah, yeah. Be because it, it's one thing to realize that your friends and colleagues are vulnerable to conspiracy theories and reactionary politics but and, and you can riff on that all day like once you see it you're you're never going going to unsee it you're yeah. never going to look at you know 40 people lined up on six by two yoga mats in a room all doing the same thing and not think of Nazi Germany calisthenics. Like you're just yeah. never going to, you're, you, you won't be able to forget it, right? Thanks for that, Matthew. <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. But like the real, the real challenge is, is whether or not you're going to listen more closely to what red pilled people are saying because yeah. they're not all wrong. Yeah. So, 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 you know, you and I can sort of realize, oh, this anti-vax propaganda has rolled through 
it's really, really toxic and dangerous and it's going to kill people. And, and that's one stage. But the other stage is, you know, this is where I think Naomi Klein is so helpful, where she says that, you know, as soon as, you know, Robert F. Kennedy starts talking about something, uh, progressives go silent on that issue, right? So if he starts talking about the pharmaceutical companies uh, are corrupt and they are, you know, titans of profiteering, um, and everybody nods and says yes, uh, and that is argument is marshaled to promote his anti-vax sort of position. Um, what happens on the progressive side isn't that we say, hey, Bobby, you're right about that, and you're absolutely wrong about the way to go forward. And and you can't really do that no. un unless you have an analysis, unless you have a political education, unless you're somebody like Bernie Sanders who can say, yeah, Bobby, uh, the the industries are are the federal agencies are are industry captured, uh, and the solution to that is, uh, you know, democratic socialism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the solution to universal that is universal healthcare. Yeah, the universal. The, the the yeah. The solution for that is Medicare for all and compelling the states and the federal government to negotiate with drug companies for lower prices because that's what would happen. And you know, but that's not what Bobby's saying. No, he, he's he's what what he he's got half of the issue, uh, and it's super emotional, and he's correct that uh people are being fleeced by their by their you know medical providers um but the thing is is that is that because you know the 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 left the you know progressive politicians do not concentrate as much on how to fill the vacuum yeah. that people like that are speaking into he's going to find that place so i i feel that there's two stages that you know, I can realize what Mickey Willis and Kelly Brogan are doing. Uh, and that's fairly easy. And I think it was explosive. And I think it was very illuminating. And I, I would attribute the success of our podcast to doing that. Yeah. But then there's a second stage, which is a very long road. It's what happens after everybody gets tired of the debunking. And you yeah. realize that it's not really working. Yeah. Because because what you're actually saying uh, to the people who rely on Kelly Brogan or Zach Bush is, you know, your complaints about for-profit medicine, your complaints about, you know, big pharma, they're kind of irrelevant. And that's a terrible thing to tell them because they're right. not. Right. Yeah. It's being able to criticize the exploitive late-stage capitalism that we are in and also have empathy for the people that have been entangled in this conspirituality web. And I think your book, especially towards the end, does a really good job about how to love someone who's caught up in conspirituality and not just you know, draw that line in the sand and cut them out of your life. Cause yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's, that's such an important thing because I know so many people are at that point where, you know, a lot of our listeners, they are science minded, but they're also spiritual and they have that ability to have both healthy skepticism, but also belief. And it's, one of those when you love somebody who is caught up that has been red pilled and then like how how do you 
find your way to still loving them despite all of these really harmful, toxic, and in some ways just really destructive beliefs that they have swallowed for the, you know, the hysteria that was surrounding us. And I think, yeah, you're having that last chapter that talks about those three different case studies of the people that were still able to like find common ground and love the people that they, that were caught up in this and, and still finding, because like you say, you know, the thing about conspirituality that makes it so powerful is that there is a kernel of truth to it, you know? Like absolutely, there there is horrible abuses to in the medical industry. Like absolutely, that you know, um, with with Robert F. Kennedy. You know, I actually met him in two thousand and six. I was a Sierra Club president, and I you know was so proud to meet him when I was oh goodness, I think I was like twenty three or so, and I like felt really. Um, um, fortified that this famous person was like into the environmental cause at the point where I was like really, really involved in the Sierra club and yeah. to see his like spiral to just this, you know, figure of, um, you know, the anti-vax movement has just been kind of, you know, sad and also just, yeah, like how do we, how do we counter it? And I think, you know, your podcast definitely does, such a good job of both being like critical but compassionate and yeah that's something well, I, I hope really so. appreciate it yeah well well i hope so what i what i would say is that i think you are in and your community are in a very good position to bridge the gap yeah uh, because i think that um what's essential where we do fall flat i think is it's very easy for us to very smartly and philosophically dismiss the um, the excesses in our view of religious or spiritual belief without necessarily uh, appreciating their emotional meaning or value. And um, you know, this is a long-term sort of argument that, and very sort of, I think, productive and good-natured and and loving argument that I have with uh, Derek and Julian. Julian, a little bit more, we talk about it at length, um, about our attitudes towards religiosity and the spiritual life. And I'm generally in the position where um, I want to validate spiritual needs and beliefs in order to connect with the person. And Julian is a little bit more of the mindset that um, spiritual beliefs and values can actually be the sort of fundamental building blocks of cognitive errors and, you know, authoritarian, Mm. you know, social systems and, and so we come at it from different angles, and um, and and I think too that that a capacity at least to not to never make fun of the earnest needs, psycho spiritual needs of other people. Yeah, despite where they lead, is 
really, really powerful. You you can't there there won't be any rapprochement or um, you know improvement to the to the to the general landscape of medical disinformation with this kind of like spiritual i don't know overtone to it without um like a good deal of listening and uh respect and forbearance and um and a lot of learning about history and inequality and you know and colonialism and um and also a kind of generosity in my view about why people come to the beliefs they have and whether or not they completely determine their behavior. Um, I'm more doubtful about that than let's say Julian is. Um, But um, yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think you, it sounds like you and your community are in a good sort of between worlds position to say, um, you know, we can understand the biomoral fear, for example, of a pharmaceutical intervention. We know what that means because it is your body and that needle is representative of the state entering into it and changing you in some way. Yeah, the science says that it doesn't change your DNA, but we can understand what it feels like to be entered and perhaps violated that way. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, But let's see whether we can work with that instead of telling you that that fear is stupid or that, you know, that that anxiety is unwarranted. So I, I think, you know, in the end, you know, just being less of a dick is always going to be better. Right. Uh, being being more of a loving person is is always going to be more helpful. Yeah. And for me, like witchcraft and science are very synergistic. Like every time I I look into a topic, my graduate work was actually with mushrooms and fungi. And so nice. those are one of the topics that the more you study it, the more it just brings you into this realm of like, there isn't something ineffable in nature. Like totally, for me, totally. like my spirituality is being in love with nature. Like, you know, one of the insights I've had is that witches in a lot of ways knew about microbiology, which is new about DNA, which is how we are connected to all life on this planet. And the more that we find in, in, in especially, you know, going back to mushrooms, what my my graduate work was with mycorrhizal fungi and that is one of the most beautiful spiritual ideas that there's this interconnected web of mycorrhizal fungi that help trees communicate Communicate with each other and have intelligence (laughs) and you know i like terence mckenna is totally a prophet of mine that i i really feel like that's the kind of science and spirituality synergy that I want to platform, that I want to bring out into the world of just being in love with nature and having that scientific, um, you know, understanding that deepens that spiritual. Well, so maybe this is for next time because I I do have to go. I have to take over yeah. with a childcare uh, beat, but um, maybe the next time we speak, we can talk about what is it about your understanding of Terence McKenna 
that has allowed you to continue to pursue some kind of evidentiary path mm. with your understanding of of microbiology versus people who definitely would list Terence McKenna as a primary influence and why they became red pilled in any case, because, because you share the same, you'll, you're going to share the same lineage there. And that's why I think you're actually in a very helpful position Hmm. because there's way too many people who will say, yeah, Terence McKenna was a wingnut and look where it led to. Uh, And I don't think that's helpful for the people that, you know, you want to talk to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on. We're definitely going to have to talk more. Yeah, because I yeah, this was a great conversation. And I'm so excited to share it with our listeners. And I'm excited to see continue to see what y'all come up with the next book project and also continue to follow your podcast. It's so important. And y'all's work is so just profound and and i am really excited to have gotten to connect with you and continue this conversation so thank you again thank you angel thank you so much matt for joining us it really dawned on me that the editing process for this episode in particular was a cut above the rest simply because of who we're working with today We can't understate how much of a privilege it was to get to meet and work with someone who themselves makes such an enriching podcast. I know we're a little bit small ourselves, but let's give one more shout out to the Conspirituality Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes, it was truly an honor to come on our podcast and... Conspirituality is definitely goals for us to aspire to in terms of production and important relevance. But as we aren't quite at the professional monetization level with this podcast, we have a Patreon to help support the costs of our aspirations. If you are enjoying what we are doing and you want to support us monetarily, Patreon is a great way and we have different tiers for different levels of rewards to fit your budget. At our $1 level, you'll gain access to our extra bonus content, as well as our early release episodes one day before they are put on the main RSS feed. Lately, I've been experimenting with an old sampling keyboard from the 90s, and if I make a sound I like, you'll be able to find it there. Angel also posts footage from their yoga classes on Patreon. Once we start featuring ads on our podcast, this is going to be the way you'll be able to have an ad-free experience, so if you don't like hearing ads, please consider supporting us at this level. At the $5 a month level, you'll receive roughly one sticker a month from our sticker exchange, where we invite artists in our Science Witch Art Coven to contribute art of a deity or spiritual concept. And then get it professionally printed and sent in a mail and stamped envelope to you. I have always been someone who really loves sending out mail. So with each little envelope, I try to put in some stickers and other little goodies as well as a handwritten note. After sending it out to our supporters via Patreon, I list the stickers on Etsy where they are available a la carte. We are also getting more designs printed in tapestry format to put on Etsy. If there is a deity you'd love to see on your wall in 18 by 36 inch fabric, let us know. Hell yeah. And at our $10 level, you'll gain access to our Science Witch Coven, Angel's Terror Reading Service over Zoom, as well as our patron-exclusive Discord channel. 
Speaking of Discord, if you're unable to financially contribute, we'd love to hear what you have to say on all of our other Discord servers that are free and open to the public. We've been getting more and more traffic there lately, so join the conversation. And finally, if you want to find us on the social medias, we are on threads, Instagram, and Facebook as the Science Witch Podcast. And you can still find us on the website formerly known as Twitter as at ScienceWitchPod. Don't forget, we have a YouTube channel that we are hoping to increase the quality and content on there. So if you YouTube, check us out. If you want to read our show notes and transcripts from this episode, you can see it on our website at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Finally, if you're not a social media person, but you still want to reach out and connect, you can email us at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. And until next time, live long and prosper. And blessed be.